we're going to go ahead and um, get started. Um, I've handed out a few of the what we're going over is um, the what we teach document. Um, so I'll explain this a little bit more. Uh, we've kind of given some explanation for it in the past, but Ashley's got I, got, I got a few of you, but I didn't get all of you. So if you need one still, um, we're passing them out. Um, just raise your hand if you need one, and then um, Ashley or Julie or someone will be able to, to hand those off to you. So um, as we get going this morning, we've got a few different uh, people to pray for. Um, of course, sound, uh, we've got an update on Ethan Sexton. Sounds like he's doing better overall and hopefully won't need surgery, so we'll keep praying that direction. Um, Perry, the last thing I knew, um, you know, he's still in the ER, ICU, something like that. I don't know if he's in the ICU, but he's just in the, in the hospital um, um, hurting quite a bit, so I haven't gotten an update this morning. Pat and Lance, have you haven't heard anything? Okay. So we'll keep praying um, for, for both of them, and um, uh, yeah, we'll get going this morning. So, Father, we do pray for those who are struggling and in pain um, right now. We do pray for Ethan. Um, just pray that you would grant healing um, to him and um, that he would need surgery, oh Lord God, that... Um, I think for him, but for our whole family, that would be difficult, but I just pray that you give him quick recovery um, and just know that they're trusting you, um, and I just pray that you, your comfort would be around them. I pray also for Melanie and Perry, just that um, you would uh, be with both of them. Help us to know how we can come alongside them. Please um, grant um, uh, just uh, wisdom to the doctors um, in assessing what they need to do for Perry. I pray that there would be recovery. pray that the pain would be able to be managed. Um, and I pray that you would just um, grant him comfort and re remembrance of truths, even as um, they go through this ordeal. Lord, we pray for them. Uh, we love them. And uh, we just pray for our time this morning as we talk about um, the uh, doctrines that we teach, that the elders here teach, Lord, that we would, it would be good discussion, good understanding, and uh, that we would grow in knowing and loving you. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Okay, so what we did last week, we finished going through the member declaration of faith, which that's what's being proposed uh, for the um, for the uh, the vote on amending the Constitution this in the semi-annual meeting. So we finished going through that, but remember early on, kind of when we started going through doctrinal statements, we set the stage by talking about, okay, as a, you can imagine someone who's brand new believer, right, and they should uh, want to um, become a member of the church, well, what do they understand and what do they believe? Well, just kind of the basics, right? Everyone starts out there, and so that's why we've edited the, the, um, the member declaration of faith as we have. We want those foundational truths, like here's what you need to believe. Um, as If you want to become a part of this church, here's the faith that we confess, that we declare together as members. Um, there's even, um, uh, you know, you can imagine, too, uh, that there can be disagreements on certain doctrines even among members, but we can still participate together and affirm one another's discipleship. We can still proclaim the same faith together as members of the same local church. But we also talked about how, yes, the Christ has given authority to the local church to affirm other people's discipleship. Confession of faith is part of that. Um, and uh, it's that part of that whole mixture of being a member, of 
of, of baptizing people into membership or partaking in the Lord's Supper together. It's part of what being membership is, is that, that declaration of faith together. But there's a different authority given to the elders in terms of teaching, shepherding, caring, guarding. Uh, and so that's why we've split, essentially, the doctrinal statement into two. So we've got the member declaration of faith in the Constitution, and then what you, this is is uh, what we've called the what we teach document. And I'd ask you to open to the first page, the table of contents, because it really highlights, uh, together with the introduction, what this statement is all about. You will notice in the table of contents there um, that uh, there is one portion that's titled the Elder Declaration of Faith with all of those same basic headings, um, more or less, that are that we saw in the member declaration of faith. So the Holy Scriptures, God, mankind, salvation, the church, spheres of authority, angels, last things. Uh, but then you see the second portion which uh, is positions on specific issues. Um, and so what, if I was to kind of summarize the introduction to this, um, and I might read a couple portions of it, but uh, basically when we talk about what we teach as elders, there's kind of two parts to that. We're reflected in the table of contents. One is the timeless truths, right? Um, the main doctrinal areas, the scriptures, who God is, right? Those are timeless truths that... Um, that you, you should have in a doctrinal statement. However, there are things, and we know this to be true, right? You can look at church history and know this to be true, that there are things that come up uh, in, uh, that the church encounters uh, in society, even within internal dialogue and discussion, that um, the teachers of the church need to take a position on it. And so what you'll notice, actually, in that section... Uh, marriage, divorce, remarriage, sexual immorality, substance abuse, those are sections that were in our, or are in our current constitution and our current doctrinal statement. Those sections are in there, and they were just, I just lifted them out of there and plugged them right into that section. So just to be clear, right, um, someone asked, well, is there a problem with our, you know, our old constitution? Well, yes and no. The, the no part of that is the content itself. The content that's in our current constitution is good. Uh, it's good stuff, right? And even taking positions on some of these things, like marriage, divorce, remarriage, especially in our society, very important. Um, so that's included in the what we teach. So you've got these kind of two sections. And uh, what I say in the introduction is that the, 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 the elder doctrinal statement, the elder doc declaration of faith, um, should remain fairly stable. That makes sense, right? Because these are timeless truths. These are truths that we agree on and we teach. The positions on specific issues, that's going to grow and expand um, with time by its very nature, right? Because we're going to encounter new things, uh, new things that our society, new things that the church is encountering, uh, and we're going to need to take positions and stands on those. And so you will see that kind of second section uh, grow more <laughs> um, and uh, be revised more often than, say, the Elder Declaration of Faith. Everything, uh, we know that the scriptures are the only infallible and inerrant document. It even says that in uh, the early pages of our Constitution that nothing we say in terms of our doctrinal statements or our beliefs um, can contradict or should contradict the Word of God, right? Uh, these documents are subject to change. Our uh, member declaration of faith, our elder declaration of faith, they're subject to change because what is a doctrinal statement? It's trying to summarize 
what biblical teaching is, or in the case of specific issues, it's trying to summarize how does biblical teaching apply on these issues. These documents are all subject to revision, and we want to review them um, on an ongoing basis. But anyway, that's just a little bit of introduction to how this document is structured and its design. Um, so I'll go ahead and read that introduction for you. Uh, it's, um, it, it basically says a lot of what I just said, but um, a couple more details. This document, this is the introduction on page two, this document is designed to incorporate two aspects of teaching positions of the elders of Faith Bible Church. The first section is the De Elder Declaration of Faith, which summarizes the elders' belief in teaching positions on foundational doctrinal matters intended to convey timeless truths to the Christian faith. This statement, while still subject to review, is intended to be the stable teaching positions of the elders. The second section is the elder positions on specific issues, um, and I've kind of already summarized that, so I'm going to skip that paragraph. Uh, every elder must be able to believe, teach, and defend all these positions in both sections without reservation at any given time while serving as an elder of Faith Bible, at Faith Bible Church. If at any time any elder changes conviction on these issues, he must notify the other serving elders as soon as possible. Um, and uh, that language of teaching and defending comes from Titus 1. An elder must be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict. Um, and so um, that's what we need to do. That's why we have these positions. We need to have them and also defend them. Uh, this next paragraph is important as well. Uh, we've related this to the deacons and the deaconesses at uh, a prior meeting, but it's kind of encapsulated in this paragraph. As assistance to the elders and part of the leadership structure of the local church, deacons, understood here as an umbrella term for both deacons and deaconesses, are required to substantially agree with these positions. If in any matter a deacon or aspiring deaconess disagrees with the elders' teaching positions, they should discuss the matter with the elders along with a written statement of where they disagree and why. Depending on the nature of the disagreement, that person may still be allowed to serve as a deacon as long as they agree not to speak contrary to the elder teaching positions. Basically, that's um, what we understand from the leadership structure in the New Testament. Uh, deacons are assistants to the elders. What is the elder's job? To shepherd, to care, to teach, to guard. Um, and so um, it doesn't mean uh, total, 100% alignment, but substantial, right? Because otherwise there's, there's conflict even within the leadership structure and what is being um, taught for belief. So that's kind of an introduction to this document and what it's all about. What questions or comments do you all have as we, we enter to work through this? So let's, um, uh, let's take um, the one that we're, you know, we're kind of in an ongoing discussion matter, right? So close communion, right? You will see in this document that this teaches close communion, but our member statement does not. So we talked about that last week. Um, so someone could disagree on that issue, still be a member, and I would say still be a deacon or a deaconess. You just couldn't teach contrary to it because that's the responsibility given to the elders. The elders are agreed on that position, so our responsibility before Christ is to teach. That doesn't mean you have to agree with that position. We believe you should, but we're gonna, we're gonna teach you that direction, we're gonna talk, but even if you finally um, disagree, that's okay. Um, uh, does that make sense? And there could be others too, like eschatological issues, right? Like uh, maybe um, you know some of those issues you might disagree on or differ with, and that's, just depends on the issue. Now, if you're saying, well, I actually believe that, um, 
you know, Jesus is a created being, or you start saying stuff like that, like, well, first off, you can't be, uh, not that any, any <laughs> that are currently serving or members would say that at all. Uh, no one would say that. But, like, if something like that more substantial came into view, like, that's when one's like, okay, um, there's, some, there's some issues here. Or even um, how you interpret scripture. Um, there, you'll see, as we read through the scriptures, that's such a foundational issue that if you had kind of an odd view of interpreting scripture or something like that, then we would say, well, you can still be a member here, but like um, that's that's kind of wonky. So um, since we're trying to, as leaders, as, uh, as elders, we're trying to teach, um, we would ask you not to to serve um, as a deacon, although you can still be an elder, so or still be a member. Um, so does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Any other questions? Is a good question. So. Okay. Well, let's start walking through it. And what I want to do with this, a lot of this will be, you will see is very similar um, to the member declaration of faith. That ought to be the case, right? They ought to be similar. But what you will see uh, is that the, this is way more detailed, um, right? There's, uh, and that makes sense because the, the elders are held to a higher standard of doctrine. Uh, doctrine just means teaching um, than our uh, members. And remember what our, our aim as elders, right? Um, we want to teach you these things. We want to bring you along in these things. No one starts like knowing all this stuff, right? Um, but we want to bring you along in these things because we believe this is what Scripture teaches. So um, just so you guys can see, uh, there's a little footnote there where the, the genesis of this statement is uh, Grace Community Church. That's John MacArthur's church, um, their doctrinal statement. That's the foundation for this document. Uh, you will. There's a couple other footnotes throughout where other doctrinal statements of churches that we respect were referenced, and there's a couple other places where we've modified wording. But in general, that's just where the foundation of this document came from. Okay, the Holy Scriptures. And I'm going to read the whole thing, but like we did before, um, I'll highlight a couple aspects, but I want you guys to make notes, ask questions. And really what we're trying to do in this by going through this is not to just rehash all that we already went through, but to show you um, uh, this is what we're going to teach you. This is what we, we believe. We believe that the Bible is God's written revelation to man, and thus the 66 books of the Bible given to us by the Holy Spirit constitute the plenary, inspired equally in all parts, Word of God. We believe that the Word of God is an objective, propositional revelation. Um, propositional, it makes propositions of truth. And all that, when you read... Um, when you read scripture, even narrative portions, there are propositions to be gained from those portions of scripture that we need to learn to understand and obey. Propositional revelation, verbally inspired in every word, absolutely inerrant in the original documents, infallible and God-breathed. We believe the literal grammatical historical interpretation of scripture, which affirms the belief that the opening chapters of Genesis present creation in six literal days. We believe that the Bible cons constitutes the only infallible rule of faith and practice. We believe that God spoke in his written word by a process of dual authorship. The Holy Spirit so, su so superintended the human authors that, though, uh, they're in that through their individual personalities and different styles of writing, they composed and recorded God's word to man without error in the whole or in the part. We believe that whereas there may be several applications of any given passage of scripture, there is but one true interpretation. 
The meaning of scripture is to be found as one diligently applies the literal, grammatical, historical method of interpretation under the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit. It is the responsibility of believers to ascertain carefully the true intent and meaning of scripture, recognizing that proper application is binding on all generations. Mankind is called to submit to God's word, not and stand in judgment over it. Okay, so that's a longer statement than the, if you were to compare it with the member version. What are a couple things that stand out maybe that you didn't see in the member version? Or things that stand out or you have questions about in general? So here we include, yeah, there's a lot more specifics. There's specifics about Genesis because we believe that uh, if you apply the literal grammatical, so what we mean by the literal grammatical historical method is paying attention to context, paying attention to words and grammar, um, that uh, meaning can be conveyed and meaning can be under, can be recovered um, even in our day. Uh, so basically, uh, it, the literal grammatical historical method is uncovering the author's intent. What is the human author intending? Because what the human author is intending is what God is intending because God spoke through those people to speak God's intent. And so that's where you see a lot more detail about interpretation. Um, that wasn't included in the member statement because there are believers through time that have had wonky ways of interpreting the scriptures and yet they still understood the gospel. Um, it's just unfortunate that they had such wonky ways of interpreting scripture. There's you can see that with the allegorical method um, in the first few centuries of the early church. Uh, they're still believers. It's just like, whoa, um, you're, you're not handling scripture rightly. But here, um, if we're going to teach, well, the foundation of our teaching has to be we have to recover the meaning of scripture and teach that. And that's what we believe. Um, and that's what we hold together as elders, that that's how we're going to interpret and apply scripture. So uh, you'll see a lot of language in there uh, about inerrancy and not without error because even amongst, let's say in the last hundred years, um, even amongst evangelical Christians, inerrancy has been watered down or under attack. Um, and so it's very specific to that because we believe in inerrancy. We believe in the inerrancy of the original written documents. Do we have the original written documents? No, but God in his providence has given us so many manuscripts uh, of, uh, of copies that we can recover with a great degree of confidence uh, in the original readings, uh, and from that we, we preach on. In in incredibly preserved compared to other old, um, old documents in human history. There's nothing that comes close um, to how well the scriptures have been preserved. So, And you see God's providence in that. Um, so... Any other questions? I'm going to move through these pretty quick because we've gone through a lot of this stuff already. So uh, I just want to highlight some of the specificity that comes out um, in, in the elder version. Any questions? All right. So let's move on to God. We believe that there is but one living and true God, uh, an infinite, all-knowing spirit, perfect in all his attributes, one in essence, eternally existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, each equally deserving worship and obedience. Uh, God the Father. Uh, uh, well, let me pause there. Any questions on that opening statement? Yeah. 
Yes, Eden. Um, just because of like what we're trying to highlight here is God's um, part of God's essence. Um, all three person, all three persons. Each person is fully God, and to be God, uh, the, it's not like God has materiality to Him fundamentally, right? Um, he is spirit, um, and so if I say the infinite, all-knowing Spirit. Uh, it could bring about confusion, confusion with the Holy Spirit. And so that's not what we're trying to do here. We're not trying to emphasize the Holy Spirit. We're trying to emphasize part of whose God's essence is as a being. Does that make sense? So he's like, let, let's put it another way. Are angels spirit? Yeah, angels are spirit. So in that sense, there's a similarity. Obviously, there's profound differences because angels are created and God is not. But angels are spirit beings. So is God, uh, but in a, um, in a fundamental way. He's not material in, in, in that sense. Right. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, and th there's no, I mean, there's no claim here to... Like I said, it's it's trying to describe his some of his essence. It's not trying to dis, uh, to it's not trying to compromise his exclusivity as being here. He's the only one, and you will see statements uh, far uh, farther along that do emphasize his his oneness, um, his, who he is. So there's um, it's just trying to emphasize here's here's part of who God is in his character, right? Um, he's spirit. So are the angels. But the difference is um, that God is infinite all, and all-knowing. So. Uh huh. Right. Except that you've got that language right before it of there's one living and true God. There's only one, and he just happens, I mean, not just happens, he, um, he has this particular um, nature. Like, if we're going to try to describe who God is, he's spirit. So angels are also spirit, but they're spirit in a different way. Um, they're created spirit, whereas God is uncreated um, spirit. So, um, Good. Anything else on that one? Okay, God the Father. We believe that God the Father, the first person of the Trinity, orders and disposes all things according to his own purpose and grace. He is the creator of all things. As the only absolute and omnipotent ruler in the universe, he is sovereign in creation, providence, and redemption. His fatherhood involves both his designation within the Trinity and his relationship with mankind. As creator, he is father to all men, Ephesians 4, 6, but... He is spiritual father only to believers. He has decreed for his own glory all things that come to pass. He, his, he continually upholds, directs, and governs all creatures and events. In his sovereignty, he is neither the author or approver of, nor approver of sin, nor does he abridge the accountability of moral, intelligent creatures. 
He has graciously chosen from eternity past those whom he would have as his own. He saves from sin all who come to him through Jesus Christ. He adopts as his own all who come to him, and he bestows and he becomes, upon adoption, father to his own. So what are some things maybe that stick out to you in this one that, um, you know, maybe um, sound different or you notice differences with the member version? Or just details that stick out to you in general? Yes. It means that he, um, we say that God is sovereign, um, that he's not the author um, or approver of sin. So God decrees all that comes to pass, right? So does God decree that sin happens? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm trying to give you the full kind of picture of what this is saying. So what we say is God decrees all that comes to pass. However, he does not, uh, in doing so, he does not uh, approve sin. That's not his revealed will to people. Um, no, and in decreeing all that comes to pass, he does not, uh, that does not uh, get rid of, that's the idea of a bridge, uh, it doesn't get rid of the accountability of moral agents. So uh, does God decree that sin has, exists in his universe? Yes, because he declares, declares the end from the beginning. Is God a sinner? No, absolutely not. Um, does he want, uh, is it his revealed will? Um, or Does he approve of sin? No, he does not. Um, does he, by decreeing all things that come to pass, and even in some mystery, sin and evil, does he, uh, are we then robots uh, that just, we don't have any choice, we're just, going to sin. No, we are still held morally accountable by the scriptures uh, for being sinners. So that's what it means by abridge the accountability of uh, moral intelligent creatures, right? We are still held accountable for being sinners. Yeah, that's a good question. No, 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 it's okay. It's good. Yeah, and just sure, and that's where we, where this document is will um, be designed along with our member doctrinal statement to be publicly accessible, and so you can imagine someone reading through this or talking through it with someone say, "Hey, what does that mean?" And we'd have a great conversation, just like we're having here, of like, "Well, here's what that means," and that's what this these words are um, are teaching. So, yeah. Susan. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think even here, so like um, if you see that sentence towards the end of the paragraph, 
He has graciously chosen from eternity past those whom he would have as his own. So, yeah, so uh, we put it under both. Yeah, you're right. Because, and it's, there's overlap. That's the thing about these categories is, right, there's, they overlap with one another. And so um, you'll see some things reiterated later and here. But that, you bring up a good thing, right? We, um, in this one, we specifically, very clearly said, we believe in unconditional election. And we do, uh, as elders. We believe in unconditional election. We do not believe in uh, the Arminian version of election, which says that God looked ahead to see who would believe, and therefore he chose them. We believe that God's choice is prior. And be, that person believes because God choose, chose them. Uh, and so that's part, and together with the salvation stuff that's coming later, is designed to articulate that, um, uh, that you of tulip, unconditional election. So... Correct, because, yep, yeah, I mean, uh, there are many in brothers and sisters, preach a true gospel, I would be happy to serve alongside them um, at a, as a member of the local church. I don't want them on the elder board, because we want to teach Calvinism, because we believe it is true, and it is, it's not that there aren't consequences to your belief system if you hold to an Arminian position, um, there are. Your beliefs have consequences, right? And so um, there's that level of, yeah, I can cooperate with you as a member of the church, but when it comes to teaching, uh, we as elders hold to, um, uh, you know, the five points of Calvinism, and we're going to teach them. So, and here's the other thing. Suppose an Arminian brother or sister comes into the church, and they're like, hey, I'm an Arminian, right? And we have a great conversation, say, um, well, we love you, brother, and just so you know, if you're going to be a member here, we're, let us, full disclosure, here's what we're going to teach you. Um, and, uh, and I know, I know of people um, that uh, even back in Spokane, they were Arminian in their conviction, but they still became members of the church, and they, they, they stayed there, they learned, there was fellowship, uh, and yet um, they, uh, you know, they were respectful of the elders' teaching positions. They didn't contradict it. Um, you know, there might have been discussion on some of those things, but they submitted to the elders in that teaching position. So submitting doesn't necessarily mean you agree with the position. It just means that you're respectful of it and what's trying to happen in that church as the elders teach, teach the congregation. So, yeah. Got a good question. Other questions? All right. God the Son. God the Son, we believe that Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, possesses all the divine excellencies, and in these he is co-equal, consubstantial, and co-eternal with the Father. Remember that word consubstantial? It's a word, we, speaking of words that we don't use every day, uh, um, uh, it means the same, <laughs> literally it's like the same stuff, right? So uh, the same substance, not that we're talking about material substance here. But what it's trying to communicate is everything that God is in his essence and who he is, Jesus is, Christ is. The second person of the Trinity is, God is, or God the Son is. So that's what that language is trying to articulate. Uh, we believe that God the Father created according to his own will through his Son, Jesus Christ, by whom all things continue in existence and in operation. So the Father is the creator, but also the Son is the creator. The Father creates through 
the Son. And you see that um, in um, a couple of those passages that are highlighted there. Um, John 1, 3, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Um, nothing came to be out, apart from him. So you see Jesus, or really God the Son, um, it be, being creator, and he's, he, God creates through the Son. Um, it's usually, if you want to articulate in general the relationship between the persons of the Trinity, it's the Father through the Son by the Spirit. Um, you will often, throughout the, the scriptures, you will see that relationship over and over again. The Father through the Son by the Spirit. Um, and one of those aspects is creation itself. So, We believe that in the incarnation, the eternal Son, the second person of the Trinity, without altering his divine nature or surrendering any of the divine attributes, made himself of no reputation by taking on a full human nature, consubstantial with our own, yet without sin. So now we've got consubstantial again, but this time it's in reference to humanity, right? What we're trying to articulate here is um, the eternal son. So if you think about the person of the son, he's always been the son from all eternity. He's always been God from all eternity. And what we're trying to articulate in this language is that in the incarnation, uh, the Son did not surrender any of his divine attributes whatsoever, but he did add to his divine nature a human nature. Uh, and then um, I think language later, uh, it will say without confusion, without separation, without division. Uh, but it's trying to articulate both and, right? That, this, that Jesus, as the person of the Son, is both God fully, and he's both man fully. He shares in all the, the substance and essence uh, of human nature, yet without sin. Actually, we know human nature is not by definition sinful. We know that because there was, a, there was a full and true human nature before the fall. And so you can think of Jesus, right? He's got that full, perfect human nature, and he, he doesn't need to be able to sin nor sin to be able to share in that nature, right? Um, and that's why you get that language in Paul, he's the second Adam, right? Um, because he doesn't share in that, um, that sin nature, that we only have a sin nature because we're in Adam, right? Um, because of the effects of the fall. But Jesus is not, yet still has a true human nature. So, um, okay, uh, this is a long one, so maybe I'll pause there. Any questions up to this point? Okay. We believe that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary and thus born of a woman, so that two whole, perfect, and distinct natures, the divine and the human, were joined together in one person without confusion, change, division, or separation. Therefore, he is truly God and truly man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. And that language of without confusion, change, division, or separation, that's... Uh, I believe that's language from the Chalcedonian Creed 451, um, where they, um, they, were, they, they got the Trinity down and articulated in Nicaea, and now it's like, all right, but soon after, okay, it's like, wait a minute, how does Jesus, deity, and humanity, how does that work? Uh, and so this is the language of one person, two natures. Uh, it's actually kind of the reverse of if you think about the Trinity, it's one nature, three persons. In Christ, you have one person, two natures. Um, and uh, the Spirit and the Father don't have a human nature, 
uh, only the Son, right, because of the incarnation. So wild thoughts when you start meditating on them. It's like that's why like the incarnation is so so profound to meditate on and to think about what God the Son did to ransom um, his people. Um, it's amazing. So again, a, a lot of these things is not we're not trying to just cross our doctrinal T's and dot our I's. Uh, doctrine should lead us to worship. Understanding our the nature of our God. Um, should lead us to worship and praise and thanks, right? Uh, and so that's one of these things. Yes, we, we, we have this so that we are public about what we profess, what we believe, and what we teach, um, but we also, this is our articulation of this is our God, and we worship him, and we love him, and we delight in him. Uh, and these are aspects of how we can delight in him. So, uh, oh, go ahead, sorry. Right. Yeah. 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 Church history. I, I encourage you. If you've never read church history, um, you should read church history. Um, and if you want a good uh, resource for that, uh, really readable, really accessible. Uh, Two thousand years of Christ's power. Um, it's in four volumes, but. Um, even if you were to get volume one, it, it covers the first basically five centuries or so of the early church. And you just get a sense of uh, where, how the church, like the, the, the truths are always there. They're, they're in scripture when the ink was dried. They're there in scripture, but we're, infallib we're fallible interpreters. And so it takes time for the church to understand and recognize and get a handle on, oh, this is what scripture teaches. And so you see the process of that in church history. And then, um, then uh, I don't know about you, but I think for the longest time, um, my conception of church history is like, okay, we've got the New Testament church, and then there's just like, it went off the rails immediately, and there's just this blank of darkness and all sorts of travesties, and then we get the Reformation, and then things are really good. Um, and it's just, it's more complicated than that, um, and it's more full than that, and it's way more beautiful than that. Because you see God preserving his people um, even through um, those centuries. So it's, uh, it's a good read to read some, uh, some church history. Um, okay. Um, okay, yeah. Um, we believe that in his incarnation, Christ fully possessed his divine nature, attributes, and prerogatives. Um, however, in the state of his humiliation... He did not always fully express the glories of his majesty, concealing them behind the veil of his genuine humanity. According to his human nature, he acts in submission to the Father by the power of the Holy Spirit, while according to his divine nature, he acts by his authority and power as the eternal Son. 
So sometimes you, pro- I don't know if you've ever heard that statement that um, Christ gave up the independent exercise of his divine attributes. You ever heard something like that? Sometimes people will say that, like in becoming human, Christ gave up the independent exercise of his divine attributes. Um, and what this is actually stating, no, he did not. Because there are, um, God, how can God give up the exercise of his own attributes? So you're trying to articulate what Philippians 2, and Philippians 2 is the, one of the key passages in this, where he emptied himself, becoming, um, and, and the question is, how did he empty himself? And a lot of people say, well, he emptied himself of his, of his divinity, or at least the exercise of his divinity. And no, that's actually not what Philippians 2 says. It says that, how did he empty himself? He actually emptied himself by taking on the form of a human. Humility. It's emphasizing humility. And we see that. And so uh, that language here of he's veiling his majesty. He doesn't cease to possess it, um, but he's veiling it behind his humanity. Um, And... um, Jesus never gave up the exercise of his deity. In fact, we can probably argue that there's a couple places in the Gospels where he is directly using his deity. It's hard to know sometimes, is he directly using it or is he like depending on the spirit because we see him doing that too. But regardless, he never gave up those, um, the exercise of those, those attributes. So. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Philippians 2 blows me away every time because he's in the form of God and yet he, he adds to his deity humanity and, and, and he humbles himself to the point of, uh, in obedience to the point of death, even death on a cross, to serve his people. And God serving his people whom he chosen from before the foundation of the world. It's absolutely incredible. So, yeah. We believe that our Lord Jesus Christ accomplished our redemption through the shedding of his blood and sacrificial death on the cross, and that his death was voluntary, vicarious, so it's uh, substitutionary, propitiatory, and redemptive. So um, vicarious, it's uh, in substitution, it's on behalf of others, it's in substitution of others, which a lot of people would, uh, even going under the name of Christian, would deny that, uh, which is, that's really how the gospel works, right, is substitution. Propitiation is satisfying God's just demands um, for, um, uh, for sin, his wrath, um, and redemptive, calling us, it has an effect, right? It's calling us, calling us back. We believe that on the basis of the efficacy of the death of our Lord Jesus Christ, the believing sinner is freed from the punishment, the penalty, the power, and one day the very presence of sin, and that he is declared righteous, given eternal life, and adopted into the family of God. So what that's trying to articulate is Christ purchased the whole package deal of salvation. Uh, We have participated 
in aspects of that purchase, namely our justification. Uh, so what does it say? It says the punishment. We have been saved from the punishment and penalty. Um, the power of sin. We don't have to sin anymore. And then the part where we haven't participated in yet is one day the very presence of sin. Right? We're in this intervening time um, where we don't have to sin anymore. And the penalty and our, our guilt has been paid for. But we haven't yet experienced that aspect of salvation where the very presence of sin is is gone away with. So salvation is a package deal. It has past past um, uh, implications, it has present implications, and it has future implications. So, um, okay, we believe that our justification. Uh, is made sure by his literal, physical resurrection from the dead, and that he is now ascended to the right hand of the Father. We are now mediates as our advocate and high priest. We can't leave out the resurrection and the ascension um, uh, from from our gospel, and from who Christ is, and what what the, the his uh, his uh, his his life and his action looked like. We believe that in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave, God confirmed the deity of His Son and gave proof that God has accepted the atoning work of Christ on the cross. Jesus' bodily resurrection is also the guarantee of future resurrection life for all believers. Um, so the resurrection accomplishes many things um, in what it does. Uh, it shows that Je Jesus paid that price in full, but it also is the first fruits of the reward that he has purchased for us in resurrected bodies um, in the new heavens and the new earth. We believe that Jesus Christ will return to receive the church, which is his body, unto himself at the rapture, and returning with his church in glory, will establish his millennial kingdom on earth. Uh, you will notice we use the language of rapture. Rapture just means the, that people are snatched. That's literally what the word means. People are snatched. Um, it doesn't specify here, nor does it specify in this document when the rapture will happen. It just says it's going to happen. Which is true. Scripture says in 1 Thessalonians 4, it's going to happen. So uh, believers are going to be snatched, whether that's pre-tribulation, mid-tribulation, or post-tribulation. One of those three, something like that's going to happen. People are going to be snatched to be with Christ and then eventually to come back um, to earth to establish his millennial kingdom. So we are pre-millennial uh, on, uh, on earth. And the, the eschatology stuff is later on in the document as well. Last paragraph of this section, we believe that the Lord Jesus Christ is the one mediator between God and man, the head of his body, the church, and the coming universal king who will reign on the throne of David is the one through whom God will judge all mankind in the future, including believers and unbelievers at the culmination of redemptive history. So that's one thing that people don't often think about is Jesus is the judge. He is the Savior, and he is the judge. Uh, and John 5 makes that very clear, that he is going to be the judge um, at the end of time. So that, uh, we'll, we'll, uh, we're at 10, at 10 right now, so I'm going to stop there, because the next one is God the Holy Spirit. Um, but anything in those sections we just read over, questions? Um, we're being way more specific and articulate um, than we were even in the member declaration of faith. Uh, it's not that we... Um, it's not that we don't believe these things. Obviously, we do, right? That's why we're articulating them here now. We're just saying that let's, let's get down to the brass tacks in the, in the member declaration of faith um, of who Jesus is and what do you need to believe about him. So.
and you'll see things that carry over, and then you'll see a lot of the things that are very specific uh, and detailed um, not portrayed there, not because we don't believe them, but because where does someone start in the journey of faith, uh, and then where do we where do we as elders want to teach and move someone towards? So, yeah. Questions, comments? All right. Let's pray. Uh, Jesus, we give you great praise um, of who you are. We thank you for your service, your humility, uh, and you, God, the eternal Son, um, becoming a man to rescue your people, to serve your people, and even to serve them in the future, as Tony pointed out, Lord God, just amazing, amazing, and we do not deserve it. We are, Our hearts are filled with gratitude and joy and um, thankfulness and a sense of humility and unworthiness because of what you have done, and Lord, that's why we gather. Um, what you did, what you have done, is why people gather this morning in this local church. So we pray that you would bless the morning, that we would praise you with joyful hearts, that we would listen to your word with, with uh, attentive ears, that we would partake in the Lord's Supper um, in remembrance of what you have done, in remembrance of who you are and, who, and your current mediation of high priest. Lord, we, we love you greatly um, and we praise you. Uh, bless this morning, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.